encourage you to get out uh, your Genesis scripture journals for the very last time in a Sunday gathering. I'm going to be saying that for like the next six weeks. Get out your gen. Nope, nope, nope. Because it's just a habit. So get that out. If you, if you don't have one, that's fine. If you just want to open your Bibles to Genesis, we're going to basically do a, a, a summary looking at some of the threads that we saw through the book of Genesis as a way of us remembering and being encouraged at the journey God has brought us through. Um, I think it was Kaylin or somebody's like, you got to figure out how many sermons it was. It was 62 sermons. So 62 sermons we spent, uh, Tyler Jordan and I, preaching through the book of Genesis, which was amazing and fun. And I know lots of things I remember as we went through it, things that corrected me, things that encouraged me, things that motivated me, motivated me and, and encouraged me to love and know Jesus more. So it was just a fun journey. If I were to plant a church ever again, I think the first book we'd go through would be Ephesians, like we did when we planted Christ Church, and then Genesis. I would just go right to Genesis, because there's so much here that is foundational um, to our lives and to the way that the rest of redemptive history plays itself out. And so this morning, I'm going to begin, um, a couple of people shared, a bunch of people shared with me testimonies of ways God spoke to them in Genesis. Um, a lot of the people who shared those with me aren't here today. They couldn't make it. They're on vacation or traveling. Um, but this morning, we're going to have uh, Jean, Renee, and Casey are going to come, and I want them to share uh, what God has done in their hearts and how God encouraged them. So Jean and Renee, you guys want to come first? And they're going to share, and Casey is going to share, and then we're going to jump into the book of Genesis and do a quick, not a quick, we're going to do a, a walkthrough of the book. So all yours. Is it on? Okay. All right. Well, the one message that stands out the most to me was two years ago, actually, almost to the date. Um, it was on Genesis 1, 31 through 2, 3, so the very beginning of Genesis. Um, it was just a sh short few verses, but they pack a large punch. The main verse was, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I'm still reviewing this message two years later because being a busy mom with three kids, rest is something that I struggle with. Actually, even before I had kids and a husband, I still struggled with taking time out to rest and restore my body and my mind. A few things from Matt's message that day still resonate with me, such as, when God declared all that he had made to be very good, he also declared it finished. And when he realized that he was done, he didn't try to turn to another task. He rested. Also, Matt said that the Sabbath rest is a day to the Lord, given by the Lord for rest and refreshment, and it takes humility to observe it. What Matt taught is that God's commands here is not to work just a little bit harder, but to rest, to stop and smell the roses, if you will. And us sinful humans, this sinful mom, just wants to keep on doing one more thing, accomplishing one more task. How human of us to fight God about taking a day off. <laughs> I know that making time for rest will continue to be a struggle for me and that I will have to be purposeful in training my mind to enjoy imaging God by resting like he does until I can one day enjoy eternal rest with him in heaven. I used to be very good at rest. 
as a dad and a single guy, I used to be able to do it for weeks at a time. Um, but I am married to a very uh, diligent wife. I have been teaching for 21 years, and there's a lot of things to do with that and raising kids. And I think that rest message was good for all of the whole family, kind of look at it through the same lens together. Um, and then going with that, uh, two, two messages that kind of linked off of that. Um, when Jacob was at his rock bottom, that message on July 24th of 2022, um, you said the reasons that we lose awareness of God is busyness and a full schedule. So I no longer struggle with <laughs> being a sloth, I, but I do have trouble slowing down. So like I know the, you look at the calendar, when can I take a break? Well, not Sunday, because we have this and all that soccer and all that other stuff. Um, life circumstances, the practical responsibilities of you know, being a dad, a teacher, a husband, um, and then behavior and sin, which I know is what Jacob was uh, struggling with at the time. And for me, uh, the most, challenging one, I guess, or, or the one that challenged me the most was just looking at how God, you know, one thing can be like one verse, 40 years later, something happens. Um, and I can be very impatient because I'm doing a lot. I'm working, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing. Like, God, what am I doing wrong that you're not giving the results that I'm hoping for? Um, <clears throat> and I think the, the part of the message that, uh, on Joseph's uh, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, he had been in... Uh, he had been in the jail for in Egypt for 13 years. Uh, he had just um, he had just interpreted the baker and the baker's dreams and everything. And the guy gets out and he's like, "Remember me?" And it, the next verse was like two years later. And it's like, well, why didn't he just remember him the next day? And then he could have seen God actively working. So I know I can struggle with that as I'm going through things because I want it to be in the time. God, am I doing something wrong? If you want me to do something, do it. And just seeing that these people's faithfulness uh, to God, one verse later, everything changes. And I'm always hopeful for that, um, but in that, uh, Matt pointed out six timeless truths about God. God is not in a hurry, even though I am. God work, can work very suddenly and does. He has a plan. He gives gifts. He keeps all of his promises, and God flips hardships and afflictions into fruitfulness. Um, and you had said also, in, in your affliction and hardship, God is... Uh, with you and gifting you to fulfill his plan to make you fruitful. So just be patient, stay the course, trust God's plan, not my own, uh, and keep doing what I feel like God is calling me to do and not give up. So. Whew. It's been two years, and uh, it's hard to figure out where to begin. Um, I'm sure many people would ask the question, how can the book of Genesis be relevant to me today in the 21st century? But as it turns out, the beginning of creation and the ancient days have much to say to us. The messages revive the weary soul, make wise the simple, rejoice the heart, and enlighten the eyes as they reveal the radiant, glorious, timeless, unchanging, holy God of the universe and the mysterious beautiful story he is unfolding. Genesis is for today. The truths hidden in this book, preserved by God for us, are priceless treasure that enrich our lives. And these past two years, it has been particularly impactful to me. Going back through my Genesis journal, it was hard to highlight one thing. Many things took root in my heart, thanks be to the Holy Spirit. But I would say one of the biggest themes from these past two years is this. 
God will take me on a path that will lead me and those around me to know God in the way he wants us to know him. And you might think that means God sometimes leads us away from blessings to know him. But he is actually the blessing. Nothing else compares. And in our sinfulness, we often forget or can't see it. But he is kind and slowly draws us to the source of living water where our souls are refreshed by the only thing that can truly satisfy. And out of this truth comes the second thing that most impacted me in our Genesis study. God is intricately at work in the details of our lives. He is not forgotten or forsaken, though he often works slowly. He is actively directing my life and bringing about his purposes, and nothing can stop that. Where I am today is where he has me. It's often unexpected and hard. I have personally heard a lot of no's this past year, but I have found that they are no's that are coming from a wise, loving, merciful, gracious father who loves me and wants me to know him in deeper, more wonderful ways. It eases the pain and helps me pivot toward him and the good works he has for me. I know that they are better than the ones I have for myself. So though the past two years have been riddled with heartbreak, the Lord has used this slow study of Genesis to theologically ground me to the rock that is higher than I. So just like the saints of old, I too am learning that I have a good shepherd who has been with me and will continue to be with me for all my days. Praise be to God. There's testimonies when we scratch the surface, right? Of, actually, I should leave that here. Of Genesis and what it has for us. So this morning, Elizabeth's going to come, and she's going to read the very last verses of Genesis 50 as a way of bringing closure, and then we're going to look for those threads that tied the book together. So if you're done crying, <laughs> you're going to miss me preaching on Genesis that much. <laughs> she's crying. Thanks, Casey. <laughs> Thanks for ruining the reader for this morning. You all right? I think so. <laughs> so Elsa's going to start reading in Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15, and then take us to the end of the book. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of, your, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. 
And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. And the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So it's been two years since we've been in Genesis 1, but one of the things that stands out clearly to those who would read Genesis quickly is how Genesis' book ended, how it begins, and how it ends. I don't know if you remember, but Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. And how does the book end? It ends at a funeral. It ends with us gazing into a coffin with Joseph's body in Egypt. Its book ended with God doing good in life, and it ends with Joseph in a coffin. Genesis begins uh, with man doing evil. Remember by chapter 3, man is doing evil. And then if you look at what Joseph says in verse 20, did you catch it this morning? He says, you meant evil against me. So Genesis begins with man doing evil, and it ends with man doing evil. It begins with life, and it, begins with, or it ends with a coffin. And it also begins with God doing good, right? Six times in Genesis chapter 1, we read God saying it was good, it was good, it was good. And then we got one grand ending where he says it's very good. So it begins with God doing good. And I want you to look, it ends with God doing good in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I think Moses, by the divine work of the Spirit, used that sentence with good. So the reader would go, oh, Look, God's good at the end of Genesis, and God was good at the beginning of Genesis. God is good from the beginning. God is good to the end. God is good through the whole thing. So the reader will say, and the same is true of my life. God has been good at the beginning, and God's going to be good all the way through to the very end, because that's his nature. It's his character. Genesis is about a, a book about the goodness of God from beginning all the way to the end. And... Genesis begins with God's presence with Adam and Eve. And then if you notice how it ends, Joseph says it twice, once in verse 24, once in verse 27, God will surely visit you. In other words, God was with his people at the beginning of Genesis. He's going to continue to be with his people, and he was with his people through the whole book of Genesis. The same is true for us. We can bank on it. God has been with you, and God will continue to be with you all the way through the end, even bringing you up out of your exodus out of your Egypt, whatever that may be. God is on a mission to visit his people over and over again. So those are the big bookends, the goodness of God, the sinfulness of man, the thread that continues through the whole thing. But what else did we see? Well, I just want to jump through a couple of really fun, soul-feeding highlights that are threads through this book. And before I do this, in case it helps you with the, the structure of the book, how Moses wrote the whole thing, the first 11 verses, these three divisions or three scenes, the, the, the screen goes up and there's a play, the screen comes down and it does that. There's three of those. The first one is chapters 1 to 11, which is really just about mankind in general. We're going to take a minute and look at that. Like, what, what do we see in chapter 11 about mankind? 
And then in chapters 12 to 36, it kind of focuses down on one family, on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in chapter 37, we begin our story of Joseph, right? And that goes all the way through to the very end. So it goes from mankind in general to a family to an individual. And, and aren't sometimes movies written like that? You get this aerial shot of the village, right? And then the camera zooms in maybe to one house in the village, and then it focuses on one character, and we follow one character around the village. Movies often start like that. Books will start like that. And so, so here, Moses is writing a story for us that begins very broad, mankind, focuses on a family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it focuses in on just one person, really, Joseph and his life. And that's part of the story God is writing here. And so let's, let's just take those divisions for a little bit here and see what God is telling us. So... The first section, we got chapters 1 through 11, it really is primarily about mankind in general, if you will, and what God is doing, his, his good work in their lives. And so, right out of the gate, I don't expect you to remember our Genesis 1-1 message, but right out of the gate, God makes sure that we do not miss that this story he's writing is about God, primarily it is about God. It is about his goodness in creating you and this world and his goodness in owning all of his creation. But it's all about God. So I don't know if you have your journals, you want to go back. I, you probably have these circled. Um, but we read over 32 times in 31 verses, God. <laughs> that, that should tell you something, right? When you're reading something, it's only got 31 verses and 32 times you see the word God. It would make you think this chapter must be God-centered. It must be about God. So if you remember those, verses 1 to 8, just a little uh, snapshot, we have God created, God said, God saw, God separated. By verse 5, it's God called, God said, God made, God called. And you get to the next little section, verses 9 to 13, again, God said, God called, God saw, God said, God saw. The next section, 14 to 19, God said, God made, God set, and God saw. And it continues that way until you get to the very end, verse 31, where we read, God saw everything was good. No, it was very good. Everything God had made. So we know, no question at all, that God is at the center of the earth, and God is meant to be at the center of our lives as well. I think that's the point. God's at the center of everything. And so why wouldn't he be at the center of his creation? Why wouldn't he be at the center of the, the, the prize of his creation? You and me this morning. So we are to be God-centered in our lives. I love this first chapter because it's really God creates the earth like a big stage for a play. A big playground for his people. And it's a big stage, and he uh, casts all the characters, beginning with Adam, all the way through Revelation. And you're part of it. You're part of the play. You're part of the drama that is unfolding. God then writes the script. God sets the stage. God is the director. And God is the main character of the play. He's everything. And so we're in that. We're living in that this morning. You are part of a story God is writing and you're there front and center. And so we see that. But then you know, we only have to get three chapters in before we find out that somebody else wants to be at the center. And he's just representing me. That's all he's doing. I'd rather be Matt-centered, and I'd rather have you be Matt-centered often than me be God-centered or for you to be God-centered. And that is the fall. 
And by chapter 6, we couldn't read a more condemning conclusion from God. So I don't know if you have that boxed in, but chapter 6, I think it's verse 14. Nope, chapter 6, verse 5. This is God's conclusion. Granted, five chapters into his book, six chapters into his book. The Lord saw, Genesis 6, 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. That ain't good. <laughs> That's just not good. I mean, you can't, God just makes sure we know we are in bad shape. Six chapters in, and man is in full rebellion against God. And so we know the story. God, his heart is grieved, it says, in the verses that follow. And his heart is broken for his people and for what has happened. And he chooses to flood the earth to destroy everyone. But it says that God showed grace to one guy named Noah. So he gives Noah grace. Right? And he escapes the flood. And then they get off the ark. And God gives them the same command that he gave Adam and Eve. It's, it's, it's basically creation 2.0. Here we go. Round two. And specifically says to them, be dispersed. Go out and enjoy the earth. Spread out. Have fun. Enjoy my creation. And then, we don't even get a few more verses later. We're in chapter 11. And what is man doing? They're building a tower. And the reason for building the tower is very clear. We read it in verse 4. They say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. So they're immediately back in rebellion against God right after the flood. It's like, no, we don't want to be God-centered. We want to be man-centered. We want to be us-centered. We're not going to be dispersed like you told us to. So we now are chapter 11, and man's right back at it again. And we're just expecting to read next, so God flooded the earth and annihilated everyone a second time. But instead, we turn the corner to the second section, the second big scene of Genesis with a guy named Abram, where God begins now to focus not just on people in general, but he transitions and focuses in on this one family. And if you guys remember the mess this family gets into, I can remember how many times you and Jordan preached and I preached and we were talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their kids and their wives, and it's just a talk about a family disaster. I mean, this is as bad as it gets. The conflicts and the hurt and the pain and the suffering that they all cause one another because of their sin. I felt often like I was walking right with them. I feel like I, I can see myself in some of the pain and the suffering and the relationships that go on because of sin as we saw their stories. But then there's some highlights, some things that rise to the surface as we worked our way through this section, chapters 12 to 36. And that is that God revealed himself to Abram and God had a really good plan. So you, you probably know, but Genesis 12, 1 through 4 is significant. If God doesn't show up to Abraham with this plan, it's bad news for us and for mankind. So Genesis 12, 1 and 4 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. We are blessed this morning because of the blessing of Abraham that comes to us through Christ. And this is God's plan. It begins to unfold, and, and we get excited. And then you only get to chapter 15, and you realize that God is not in a hurry. I think Casey mentioned that. I think Gene mentioned that. God is just not in a hurry. You think he's going to bless the nations, give them some kids, let them be fruitful and multiply. A couple chapters later, it's done. And if you remember, I think sometimes the length of Genesis is meant to help us engage with the amount of time that it took for God's promise to unfold. Because it was a long process for, for each of these main characters, for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob. And so in chapter 15... There's this other key moment that we encounter God talking to Abram. And he says, it says in verse 6 of chapter 15 that he, Abram, believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And if you remember, the word believed there, you have this note in your Bibles, is the word for amen. Notice he amen God said, yes, I praise you, God. Amen. You've got this plan for my life that you're going to do this. He had faith. He believed that God would do it. But then you just get a few verses later, and God is explaining, verses 12 to 15, that they're going to spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. So he unfolds his plan, and you think, yay! And then God goes, 400 years. If you remember, that verse spun into motion a saying that we had that carried us through almost the rest of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's lives. And there's a phrase that went like this, and I think Casey partially quoted it from this one, that God is going to do whatever God needs to do in Abraham's life so that Abraham will know God the way God wants Abraham to know God. And we saw that over and over again for every individual, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Rebecca, every one of them. And the same is still true for you and me. Now, and if we just walk away from Genesis with this one thing, I think we've got a lot, a lot to help each other with. That God is doing everything that God wants to do in your life, in your life, so that you will know God the way God wants you to know God. He's not doing in your life what he wants someone else to know about God. He's doing in your life what he wants you to know so that you will know him the way he wants you to know him. And then collectively, as all of us get to know God the way that God wants us to know God, we all get to know God fully. Does that make sense? This is why we need community. We need one another because you all in this room are learning things about God that I will never learn about God because God's not calling me to learn them, but I'm still going to get them from you. And that was a huge theme because I know that some of you are going through things and you think to yourself, why am I going through this thing and other people aren't going through this thing? And I don't have all the exact answers why, but I can tell you that God wants you to know him the way he wants you to know him. And that's why he's arranging the circumstances in your life. So God reveals this plan to him. God is not in a hurry. But then, linked in all of this, it was just saturated. This whole section was just saturated in grace. 
You know, people say that God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger. In the New Testament, he's love and grace. I, I, I would say to you, you've never read Genesis then. Because all these chapters, God is just throwing grace down on everybody left and right in mass proportion. And I think one of my favorites is chapter 20, if you want to turn there. It's a story where I jokingly said, I think that God mixed up the names, that Moses mixed up the names of Abimelech and Abraham. Do you remember that? Because Abraham goes and tells King Abimelech, oh, she's my sister. And then his whole family, Abimelech's family, can't have kids anymore. God reveals to Abimelech in a dream, oh, she's not his sister, it's his wife. And then he's like, what the heck did you do to me? And so they reconcile, if you will. But then the whole story from there is flipped completely upside down. Instead of Abraham saying, I'm sorry to you, and God then blessing Abimelech through Abraham, the exact opposite happens. It is an insane story of God's grace. I mean, you get to, so I can find the, the verses, verse 14 of chapter 20. And look at what he does. He says, Then Abimelech, not Abraham, took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. So here you have a guy who completely messes up a relationship, lies, does everything wrong, and he walks out of the situation with sheep, oxen, servants, land, and a thousand pieces of silver. Go figure. There is no explanation for that, except Abraham is in a covenant relationship with God. And when you are in a covenant relationship with God, he blesses those who deserve punishment. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that even this morning, since I've woken up, I've sinned enough internally to not deserve God's blessing of any kind? And yet, every day, you and I receive blessing after blessing when we deserve punishment after punishment and it's all of grace. And this story just it so smacked me in the heart of, wow, look at what God does for him. And yet God does the very, very same thing for us day in and day out. And so then as this section unfolds, God just keeps doing it. God just keeps revealing himself more and more to his people. He keeps pouring more and more grace down on them. We've got beautiful sayings like in chapter 17 where he says, I will be their God. Chapter 18, remember this one? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember that one? Sarah's like, you ain't gonna have no baby. I am way too old. Ain't gonna, it can't, not even possible. And she laughs. God's like, no, nothing, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Chapter 21, you have Hagar. So she's a slave. She's not even part of God's chosen people. She's a lady, which has her down a peg in their society. And it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to her. One of the first times in the Old Testament that Jesus shows up pre-incarnate. And who does he show up to? The least likely, Hagar. I mean, thank you. (laughs) You ever feel like the least likely? You ever feel like the one that God should never show up to? And I think it's just a beautiful picture that Jesus shows up to the people that don't expect it, to the people who don't deserve it, the people who maybe are least in the eyes of the world. And yet God is right there, peering to her in the middle of the story. 
get to 24, and we get this beautiful phrase four times repeated. I think Tyler preached on it, where it just says, the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord, four times. See, we know the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord, but as the story's unfolding, they don't. They don't know what this God is like. So when four times Moses drops this phrase, the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord, the first readers would have gone, wow, I'm so grateful. So grateful that this God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. I don't know if you remember the first time that gripped your heart. I can't imagine how that gripped their hearts. They know God now as someone who is steadfast in love and in faithfulness. And then you get to chapter 32, verse 10, which may be another major summary verse for the entire book. 32.10, highlight it, circle it, memorize it. Here's Jacob's conclusion, which I think is true of everyone who's lived on this earth. Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. <laughs> There's a summary. Is that not the summary of your life and mine? <laughs> not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown day in and day out. God's steadfast love and faithfulness that we're never worthy of. And even here in Genesis 32, they realize that. They see that. Jacob sees that and celebrates that very truth and reality. So chapters 12 to 36 really are just filled with grace and more grace and more grace and man sinning and rebelling over and over and over again. And then we get to our last little section, chapters 37 to 50, all designated really primarily to following one man's life, and his name was Joseph. So we follow Joseph. It's a little bit of a confusing thing to me because of how insignificant his life is after we end Genesis. Right? He's mentioned, but Jesus is not in his family line. Why, 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 why so many chapters on this one man when he's not even related to Jesus in the end? We're not banking on him having a kid who's going to have a kid who's going to have a kid who's going to be Jesus someday. So why? So you remember, I think we concluded a couple of different things from Joseph's story that are worth rehearsing, remembering, and proclaiming to ourselves. And the first one is this. I think this story of Joseph is here at this point in God's letter to us, God's book to us, so that we would have a vivid, living illustration about how God's sovereignty works together with man's sinfulness. That seems to be the theme through Joseph's life, right? It's man does something sinful, how is God still sovereign? And is that not the question that we often ask, right? God is good and God is God, then why do I suffer? If God is good and God is God, then why is there sin and pain? Why do people wrong me? Why is there hurt? If God is so good and God is sovereign, then there shouldn't be pain and suffering. And so I feel like it's just so kind of God 
to not even finish his very first letter to us, his very first book to us, without addressing what he knows will be a major stumbling block for us. It's a stumbling block. It's hard to identify those two. And so this story of Joseph, I think there's this beautiful thread where we see, know that God really is working even though man is sinning. And we see that here in these closing verses, chapter 50, verse 19. And we've talked about a bunch of times. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear to his brothers, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. There's a verse right across our hearts and across our days when we suffer and when things are hard and when people sin against us. To be able to look past the person and say, what you may mean for evil, God is meaning for good. This suffering may be hard, but God is going to use it for good. This trial may be something I would never choose, but I believe that God is going to use it one day in my life somehow for good. And in Joseph's example, that good was not just for him, but for others. And I wonder how many of us in this room suffer in some way. And God, in his timing, turns it around and uses it somehow for good for others that he brings into our lives. But I know he's always doing it to reveal more of himself to us. Always. He's not just letting things just happen out of control into your life. But he is on his throne bringing about good out of evil. And if this is not a pointer to the cross, nothing else could ever be. Man meant the cross for evil, and it was the most evil evil that could ever happen. And what does God do with it? It's all used for good. It is good so your, your sins could be forgiven, so you could have the hope of eternal life, so you could receive the blessing of Abraham. So we, this even is a pointer, I think, to what's going to happen in future. We've read those verses in Acts that talk about the very same thing. Pilate and all of his guys, they meant for evil. And what does God do? He spins it around and uses it for the very greatest good that could ever happen to mankind, the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to the Father. So I think that's the first thing that we get out of the Joseph story as to why he put it there in the first place. And then another is this. I think this story is here to put a hunger in our hearts for a better Joseph. And if you read the story, it, you really do love Joseph. Right? I mean, he, he does a couple of jacked up things along the way that we would know are sinful. But at the same time, he's a pretty good guy. And he's an example. And remember from Genesis 3, we're looking for a serpent crusher. We're looking for somebody to be our hero, to rescue us, to, to make things right, to, to clean up what happened at the fall. And so our heart, hearts go towards Joseph, thinking he's the man. He's the man we're looking for. He's the man we need. And so I think there's a sense in which we cultivate this hunger for him. I think Joseph is meant to be an appetizer to awaken the taste buds of our souls so that we will then hunger for someone better, for a better Joseph. I think his story is meant to help us want a better story. The character we see in Joseph is to make us hunger and thirst for someone who even has a higher character, who is even more flawless. It kind of gets us going, anticipating and being excited about it's possible that somebody could come along greater or better than Joseph. Because at the end of the day, we find Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. That's where he ends up. A devastating end to the story. So Joseph was great, but he ends up in a coffin. And so we close the book of Genesis 
gazing upon Joseph in a coffin. And I think it is meant so that we will long for an empty coffin. I think we're supposed to be gazing upon Joseph in a coffin that is meant to stir our hearts for someone who's going to escape the coffin. I think we look at Joseph in the coffin as the book closes, and that's meant to reveal a desire in our hearts for someone to conquer the coffin and to take us into the promised land like Joseph couldn't do. And I think that stirring is supposed to be there. We're supposed to wonder, will anyone ever conquer the coffin? Joseph was our man, the best we saw from the time Adam fell until the very closing chapters, and yet he is in a coffin. Will someone conquer it? Will there be someone who can rescue us? And so Genesis 1 begins with God and God's good plan. It ends with what seems like a disaster, yet in the same sense our hearts are stirred for someone who will actually be the better Joseph. And of course we have Genesis 3.13, where we know that Christ came through the blessing of Abraham to redeem us from the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is death. It's death. So we look at Joseph in the coffin and we go, that's me. I'm headed there. And then you read all of Genesis through and you connect it to Galatians 3.13 and you realize Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the coffin. Because that's what happens when we try to live by works to think that we can earn God, do the right things. It ends us in a coffin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, dying in our place for our sins as our substitute. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, Abraham's blessing, might come to the Gentiles so that we could have the promise of the Holy Spirit this morning. So ultimately, Genesis points to Jesus does over and over again we saw it so many times in so many ways but even as we gaze upon joseph in a coffin in egypt our hearts soar and wait for the man who's going to come the god man who will conquer the coffin and make it so that we do not have to experience death like joseph and that's what genesis is about it's that thread it's that good news that god is on the move doing what he needs to do to bring about our redemptive salvation amen amen and there's so much more. And so I really want to encourage you, this week, if you didn't do it already, pull out your Genesis journals, go sit on your back porch with your favorite beverage, and peruse your journal. Look for the things that God spoke to you about. Review them. Let's not move on too fast into the next book, which I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because it's a surprise. But take some time this week to do that. And if you didn't have time last week and you don't have time this week, then you're too busy. So change something. <laughs> and spend some time in your Genesis journal reviewing what God has shown you over the past two years. Don't, let the, don't, don't squander the past two years of everything that God has done in your heart. Instead, take some time to review and apply that in your souls. All right, let's sing. Let's celebrate a little bit God's goodness to us through the story in the book of Genesis.